chocolate, 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 cheese. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 41 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who likes chocolate, 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 chocolate cheese. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And this week, one review I want to get into quickly. Thank you from my 16-year-old son, Todd E. Utah, USA. Thank you for a great show. My 16-year-old son finished his first road race this past weekend. Due to low numbers, he has to race with the Cat 5 men. He finished 19th out of 50 men. The weather was epic, rain, snow, hail, sleet. All this on top of a ton of climbing and wind. He loves your show and has listened to every episode. He has used several of your hints and tips. Thank you again for a good format and straight talk. Well, Todd and your son... Thank you very much for taking the time out to write that review. I got to say, when you are younger, riding with anybody that is better than you, so he should stick to the Cat 5 men races and not drop down into any junior races unless it's a big championship. But definitely keep it up. And if you want more advice, all you have to do is email me. And a reminder to everybody listening if you do like the show, please drop me an iTunes review. Five stars rock my world. So the news this week. And Lege Baston Lege, damn hot diggity Dan Martin smashing it out. It was such a pleasure to watch him kick past Rodriguez in that final kilometer. I've got to say, I was so stoked that he won. I didn't talk him up for the win last week. I got it round the other way, but I'm happy with Martin winning and Valverde coming in third. My favorite moment was when the contenders were all together with five kilometers to go. I couldn't believe my luck. Usually it happens right at the end of races, but when you have five kilometers to go, I don't think my heart can stand it. My heart pumps so hard at the end of races, but it was awesome watching the moves roll out. Heijerdahl, get away, smash it out, and set it up for Martin. Well played, Garmin. Well played. I've got to say, they salvaged their classic season, unlike the team that starts with B and ends in C. But anyway, I'm not going to harp on that. There is also lots of other racing happening at the moment. I'm not going to get into it, except for the Tour of Turkey and that crash, that crash that knocked Renshaw for six. And it's probably the worst pileup that I've seen in a bike race. It's like nearly every single rider went down and Speaking of Renshaw, it was reported this week that he met with Quickstep to talk about a possible reunion with Cavendish. Say it isn't so, Renshaw. Have you given up the dream already? Is Renshaw destined always to be the bridesmaid, never the bride? I have a question this week that I'm going to answer for Doug. He sent me an email and asked a question, and this is it. My question involves holding my breath during races. I know it sounds like a crazy question, but have you ever heard of anyone holding their breath, particularly at the beginning of a crit? I've never even considered the possibility, but I had a good friend of mine who said it appeared that I was holding my breath. After he brought it to my attention, I was more observant, and the next day, I have to admit, I seemed pretty winded after the initial effort, almost like I'd been sprinting. Have you ever heard of anything like this? Thanks for writing in, Doug. What it really seems like is that you're having anxiety issues before and during races, 
I don't know how new you are to racing or how your body reacts normally to stressful situations, but it seems like holding your breath is a reaction to that. I would definitely say that it's not the best thing to have happen to you while you are racing because, of course, as endurance cyclists, we rely on oxygen to fuel us. I've got two suggestions. The first one is visualization. I've spoke about this at length before, but you really want to go through the whole process of the race, starting with, say, the staging area, and you want to be aware of what you're doing in the staging area. Visualize yourself being calm and relaxed. And the same thing for when you start the race. Visualize yourself breathing properly and getting enough oxygen into your system. This has the ability to set you up so you're in a calm state of mind when it gets down to these positions. And because you are actually aware of what's going on, this is going to be a way to try and set your body's default mode when you're in these situations. Another one is if this isn't working in the moment, then you can count backwards from 10. Counting backwards from 10 frees your mind up from what it's currently doing. Uh, Hopefully, It's not going to make you crash during the actual race, but it will free your mind up enough so that your body can relax and go into a normal state of breathing. And as an extra bonus here, there is something that I've always done. I'm not exactly sure where I've got the information from, but basically after any hard effort in a race, so whether it is sprinting to get into a breakaway or making an attack or anything that requires a lot of effort... If I'm breathing heavy because I've bumped up into the next zone, then I take a few breaths through my nose. So I ensure that I'm taking two or three deep breaths through my nose. And what I believe this to be doing is opening up the diaphragm a little more. So it's actually increasing the oxygen that's getting into your system and help you recovering from those efforts. This may help if you catch yourself short of breath, taking a couple of deep breaths through your nose may be able to kickstart your system again. I hope this information is helpful to you. It really seems like you just need to curb the anxiety when it comes to racing, but hopefully the visualization, the counting backwards, and then trying to breathe through your nose after any effort is going to help you solve the problem. All right, so the nuts and bolts this week, how and when to use your mountain bike in training. This week, I delve into the world of mountain bikes. This information is also useful for cyclocross riders because it does talk about the principles of specificity. But my idea behind this episode is wanting to explore the role of the road bike in training for mountain bike events. Training on the road and the trainer allows for consistent efforts. There's no denying that, but it doesn't help you with specificity, especially how your body works under heavy load on your actual race bike, whether that is a mountain bike or a cyclocross bike that's different to a road bike. I got former cross-country Olympic world champion and now coach and cyclocross racer Alison Dunlop on the show to discuss her ideas on how and when to use your mountain bike in training. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Today I want to talk about training for mountain biking and specifically the role that training on the road has when it comes to training for mountain biking. Because in my own personal training, I found that the intensity that I do on the road or the trainer does not always translate directly to the mountain bike, let alone the bike handling skills as well. But first, a little bit of background on you and what actually is your coaching background? Well, I started coaching around uh, 2000 and I've been coaching uh, primarily road and mountain bikers. I also have a level two certification with USA Cycling and I started my own business in 2003, the Allison Dunlap Adventure Camps. 
and I coach and run mountain bike skills camps and clinics through that company. So that's what I've been doing since I retired in 2005 um, full time. You've also been doing a little bit of cyclocross racing as well. Yeah, a little bit here and there. <laughs> you can't uh, you can't keep a good athlete down, I don't think. No, I will always be a bike racer. Is there any particular philosophy that you follow in your coaching? I really believe in the art of coaching. There's some coaches out there that are really, really big into numbers and graphs and charts and statistics, you know, which is very, very useful. And I use that stuff to a degree, but I really believe that there is, there's a lot more to coaching than just looking at pure power numbers and, and raw data. Um, there's so much that goes into bike racing and training that you can't read in books. And I think that's where all the experience I have from my years of road and mountain biking helped me as a coach um, because I understand the stresses and just what goes into getting ready for a bike race or going out on a training ride. So diving straight into cross-country racing, because that's the type of mountain biking I want to talk about today. Can you run through what the physical, the specific physical demands of cross-country racing are? You know, typical cross-country races are hour and a half to maybe three hours in length. So this would be different than, say, the ultra-endurance events that have become very popular as of late, where you're riding six, seven, eight hours at a time. For the two-hour, your typical Olympic-style cross-country event, obviously you have a, a huge demand on the aerobic system because the majority of your race is probably spent tempo lactate threshold with some time up in the, you know, the high heart rate VO2 range. But there is also an anaerobic component of mountain biking where you will go extremely hard and it could be having to get over something really technical or a very, very short, steep power climb. If you do any short track racing, you'll have a lot of anaerobic efforts when you're attacking or chasing down an attack. You're really training all of the systems um, for mountain biking because you have to be able to, to be good at riding super, super hard for 30 minutes going uphill. But then you also have to be able to punch it over some really hard technical section at the very top and go anaerobic, but then recover from that in time to start back up the next climb. Do you think it's possible just to have an entirely off-road training program when it comes to mountain biking? You know, there are quite a few mountain bikers that do that, but I I think, you know, if you want to get up to the elite level and race, you know, nationally or even internationally, that you really do need to have road cycling as part of your training. If I run through some of the training zones, can you just give some examples of off-road training that is possible in those zones? I'm kind of trying to explore the idea of getting on the mountain bike more. So rather than just relying on the road bike, it is a good, consistent way to train. But if people want more options for training off-road because they're short on time and they're just not getting the skills training in as well, is that fine to run through some of those with you? Sure. So starting at the bottom with endurance rides. Just go ride some of your local trails, preferably flatter type rides, and you would want to keep a nice high cadence and avoid, you know, mashing big gears, which we do a lot of on the mountain bike. And you just keep the heart rate down. So it's a recovery ride, but it's just a little bit more spirited than a true recovery ride. So you're putting a little more pressure on the pedals but you're not trying to get the heart rate up. It's still a pretty mellow 
ride. And I would say you can do endurance rides for one hour and you could go out for a four hour endurance ride if you wanted, but you just have to be careful on the mountain bike that you, especially on steep climbs that you really hold back and you slow down and you may even have to get off and walk if you can't keep that heart rate down. Mm. It kind of starts to get trickier as the intensity goes up, I feel. So what about tempo? Tempo is a little trickier because you're wanting to have a consistent ride, but if you're doing a lot of up and downs, then you're going to miss out on that heart rate zone. Right. So for any kind of intervals where there's the intensity is higher, I do actually recommend doing the intervals on the bike that you will be racing. So if you are a mountain bike racer, then you want to do most of your interval work on your mountain bike. But the best place to do intervals is not going to be on single track. It's going to be on a long, steady dirt road climb or even a paved climb. And there are many times when I would take my mountain bike out and do my workout on the mountain bike, but on a paved road. And I think that's where you're going to get the most benefit with tempo. And, you know, examples of tempo intervals can be, say, a 10-minute effort at tempo with a two-minute recovery. And you could start with three of those, so three by 10, and then work up to six. So you would get an hour total time of tempo. You know, you break them into segments of 10 minutes. You can even do 15, 20 minutes long, depending on what kind of climb that you have. So what's your thinking behind riding the mountain bike for these intense efforts? It's really important to think about specificity. You know, if you are a cyclist and you race on, you know, say you race a mountain bike, it's not going to help you as much if you train completely on the road bike or if you train on a cyclocross bike. You really need to train on the bike that you're going to race because there are differences in position, how you are sitting on the saddle, the degree that you're leaning over, you know, mountain bikes in general are heavier and slower than a road bike. So if you always do intervals on a road bike, you jump on your mountain bike and you're immediately going to feel slow and sluggish. And that's mentally going to be pretty tough. So I like to know exactly how I'm going to feel on the bike that I'm racing. The best way to do that is to do intensity on that bike, that specific bike. So you mentioned doing tempo efforts on a relatively non-technical section of an off-road track. Is that going to be the same thing then with VO2 or anaerobic efforts? Yeah. And the best way again for the lactate threshold and the VO2 is to always do them on some place where you know you won't have any downhills or anything technical that might cause your power to drop or your heart rate to drop. um, Because you really want to keep that a good, solid, consistent effort. That's the interesting thing there that um, it's kind of a hybrid because essentially you're just picking a, probably a fire trail that is just like a road and doing efforts on that. So you can get that consistency. I always found with VO2 efforts that if I'm choosing a small loop where I'm trying to maintain a high heart rate that I just, I can't get it. I can't get that consistency within a certain range. So it's interesting that you bring that up. As far as someone that's on a structured training plan Do you encourage them to ride all year round when it comes to mountain biking? That really depends on what level you are at in the sport and how long you've been riding. I think for individuals that are new to the sport or young, you know, maybe juniors or U23 riders, or again, anybody that is new to the sport, I think it is good to do some cross training in the wintertime and get away from the bike 
do some trail running, do some hiking, do some backcountry skiing, you know, something that's going to be athletic, you know, you're still working the aerobic system, but it is not riding your bike because with younger riders and newer riders, you know, you want those people to really love the sport. And I think when you're riding year round, it can sometimes be too much and you can get burnout. But for those athletes that have been riding for decades or are looking to compete, you know, at the elite level, the international level, then I do recommend riding year round. There will be periods where you will take time off the bike and not ride nearly as much. But I don't think that cross training helps you very much, you know, when you're at that level. Um, Again, I always looked at it as though I needed every possible day I could get on my bike to keep up with the women that were racing in Europe. And I didn't want to take a day of training and, and do it as a trail run because that trail run, although it was really fun, was not going to do anything for me to further my cycling. So, you know, I think the best thing for those type of athletes is to mix it up, do a mountain bike ride or go out and do a road ride or a cyclocross ride or even jump on the track. And that's a good way to keep from experiencing burnout, but you're still riding the bike, which I think in the end is going to be more beneficial for those athletes that are at that elite level. I get the idea from what you're saying there that it's, it really is about specificity and knowing yourself. It is. I mean, you really, you have to look at what you're going to do in the race. If your race is eight hours long and it's on the mountain bike, then it doesn't make sense to go train on the road bike and do one hour criteriums for training. So you have to train for what you're going to race. And, you know, the reverse is true. If you're only training for a 40 minute cyclocross race, then you don't need to go out and do four hour epic mountain bike rides. So just moving on to skills training now, because I think this is a big part of mountain biking that uh, is definitely overlooked when it comes to people that are putting in time on the road or, or just having a scientific approach to it. They're not necessarily getting out on the trails as much. And like you said, when you're trying to do higher intense efforts and if you're choosing areas that are basically like a fire trail or a very untechnical part of the terrain – then you need to spend time training your skills at a high intensity and high speed, definitely to give you that edge when you start fatiguing on race day. How can someone sharpen their skills at speed in this situation? Things that work well, if you, say, have a VO2 workout, find somewhere where you can, the uphill portion of the trail is totally non-technical, and then start your interval so that you finish your effort right at the top, and then as you crest the top of your climb and you start down your descent, you don't stop. Like you go right into the descent. So you have a really high heart rate. You're at a very high level of fatigue. And then you have to deal with whatever technical stuff is coming on that descent. You know, you may not have that perfect setup with a trail, you know, an uphill and a downhill. And if you don't, then go out, not on a day where you're doing specific intervals, but maybe go out on a weekend ride and get a bunch of friends together and ride hard. And then when you come to technical sections, push through those, ride fast, ride hard, try and follow the person in front of you, go with somebody that's faster and stronger than you. But the other thing that's very important is that if you can't ride something, you need to stop and figure out 
how to ride that section and then go back and do it again because you're not really going to improve your skills if you get through things and you don't really know how you did it but you sort of got through it and then the next time you see that same section you do exactly the same thing and you make the same mistake every time so it's important to ride things at speed at a high heart rate but it's also important to stop practice session things and really learn how to ride these technical sections that's a really good answer, I think, because it kind of follows along with if someone just buys a, a full suspension bike and they just start riding, then they're just mashing over rocks and they're not thinking about carefully picking lines. They're not thinking about where they're placing their, the weight on their bike and, and slowing down and actually figuring these things out. I know I definitely started riding with a rigid bike and there are rigid bikes around now. So that definitely helps you learn how to handle the bike better. Yeah, for sure. And, there, you know, you can be super strong physically, but if you don't have those skills, you're really going to, you're going to waste a lot of energy. You're not going to be efficient. And when you get to the really technical courses, like you see, you know, at the world championships, at the Olympics, nationals, you know, you're really, you're going to have a hard time keeping up with the riders that have the skill and are also incredibly fit. Just a quick comment on a bit of a tangent. What do you think of the courses these days? They're so groomed and engineered compared to 10 or 15 years ago. Like, I think they're absolutely amazing, the skill that goes into them. What's your opinion on the change of the courses over the years? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the courses are definitely built for spectators, which is, you know, I think is great. I kind of go back and forth with the whole idea of, you know, all these man-made jumps and obstacles uh, on a course seems very contrived, but, um, you know, on the other hand, it makes for a good race. And if a venue doesn't happen to have a whole lot of technical sections, you know, I don't see anything wrong with putting stuff in the trail that might make the race more exciting. Um, you know, and it's, it's good for TV, you know, when you see riders come around eight times, say on a world cup course, that's exciting. It's a lot more exciting to watch than, races where the riders take off and the next time you see them they're finishing you know that doesn't do a lot for spectators doesn't do a lot for tv and that unfortunately is what puts a lot of money into the sport is the media side of the sport so if if our sport isn't very fun to watch then no one's going to want to watch it and that will hurt in the long run yeah it definitely opens up new areas to build tracks because if you have a smaller area there's just someone's putting in 10 hairpins instead of where it used to be just straight up the hill or whatever. So then it extends the length of the race. But I think the engineering that's going in is quite amazing. And to ride some of these tracks and the way that the person that's putting the track together thinks about the rider, it's pretty fun. But uh, I don't know if it really follows along with the original spirit of mountain biking. You know, it probably doesn't. And, you know, I think all of us would agree that there's nothing better than going out and just doing some epic epic loop you know up in the you know above tree line and with these incredible views and the mountains and i mean that's kind of where mountain biking began but it's evolved and you know for the mountain biking to survive you know as an olympic sport and to have sponsors and teams and all that i think that's part of what mountain biking has to embrace and you can love it or you can hate it, but it's still, as a mountain bike racer, you you have to be good on all courses. And so it's just a different kind of racing. And, you know, you can't complain and you just go out there and you race your bike and you've got to be able to do it all. Bringing it back to 
handling again. Do you think that there is an amount of actual off-road riding that you have to do to maintain your skills? Oh, for sure. I mean, you definitely, you get rusty. If you don't ever ride your mountain bike, you definitely get rusty. And it's good to get on the mountain bike. It's good to ride technical stuff. Um, You don't have to do it every day. And um, depending on the level of your skill, you may only need to ride the mountain bike once a week. Um, You know, if you're new to the sport, I would say more mountain biking is just, it's going to be better. You know, the more time you spend on the bike, the better it's going to be. You know, if you've been racing mountain bikes for 25 years and are very, very skilled, then again, maybe you just jump on the trails on the weekends and then you ride the trainer or do short rides during the week. And and that's plenty. Um, But again, the specificity with mountain biking, the more time you spend on the mountain bike working on skills, the better you're going to get. Do you have any other tips for how to learn how to handle better? Uh, I think it's a great idea to take a lesson, you know, whether that's in a formal setting or you just go out with a friend and you really want to learn the basic fundamentals of mountain biking and weight distribution, how to corner a bike, um, you know, how to do switchbacks, how to ride up and down ledges. Um, A great place to do that is just on the grass in a park. And then once you know the core concepts, then you can take that out onto the trail and start working on more technical things and have somebody show you and have somebody teach you and demonstrate. And then you practice and they spot you and you practice again and again so that you know why you're doing something and that you can do it every time. You know, we go skiing and everybody that learns to ski always takes a ski lesson, but it's interesting with mountain biking that when we learned to mountain bike, I think it's very rare that someone goes and takes a lesson or a clinic. Um, but it can do wonders for your riding. And again, you know, the more you practice, you know, with specific skill work, the better you're going to get. I actually totally agree with you there. And it's funny you bring up skiing because as a beginner, yeah, you jump on and you do one or two lessons just to get going. And I remember I did that. And then two or three seasons later, I hadn't taken another lesson. It wasn't until I pushed myself to take another lesson again, that I went to another level and being conscious of what you're doing when you're going into a corner, certain types of corners and different obstacles, and knowing how to repeat that is definitely a skill that will pay off in the long run. Well, thank you very much. I think there's some great information in there. And where can people get a hold of you? They can just go to my website. It's just allisondunlap.com. And I have uh, an email contact on that website. So that's, that's how they can get a hold of me if they'd like. Great. Well, thank you very much, Allison. Yeah, thank you. Alrighty, the tech hacks and product section. And this week, I want to talk about a product from Capius Components. It's a hub called the KH2. And I want to talk about it for not just the product itself, but for two other reasons. Firstly, because I want to support the maker crowd. I believe in the maker crowd. These people that go out, innovate, create, and then make their product and add to the marketplace a high quality product that makes the world a better place. I really do believe that. And the second one is this planned obsolescence and shortened life cycle of cycling products in the modern marketplace. I read a great article on this topic this week from derena.com, hat tip to Velo Nomad for pointing me in that direction. This product and others like it fly in the face of short product life cycles, namely because it's a durable, high-quality product with a genuine innovation that should outlast you. This product itself is a second iteration, but it's based on genuine improvement rather than just something like new paint. 
So what is it? It really is a hub that's designed to outlast all other hubs. It has a large drive site engagement and bearings. It's simple to maintain. It disassembles so easily that there is no need for any special tools to break it down. Its large selling point is 240 points of engagement. What does that mean? That essentially means the clicks when you're not pedaling are the engagement when you are pedaling. And that translates into basically minimal delay after you're backpedaling on steep climbs on the mountain bike, just as an example. The price, they're steep and they're over a thousand bucks for a pair of hubs. You can compare this to Chris King, where a pair of Chris King hubs will cost you probably around $600 at most. But remember, his economies of scale are much better than a brand new startup. They're in the final days of a Kickstarter campaign. Check them out, even if you're not in the market for a new pair of hubs. If you are, even better, and you can help them along. And I like this idea of supporting people that are actually out there to make products that want to last and don't just drop into a life cycle and force us through whatever means to buy new products just for the sake of buying new products. Food for thought, but now let's get to that quote from the top of the show. It's the Sky Classics crew. This year, their Classics campaign was unsuccessful because of varying degrees of marginal pains. See what I did there? Throughout the entire year, they struggled to get anything decent. They have had no wins this year throughout any of the spring classic races or even semi-classic races. You can't write them off forever, though. That's exactly what happened in the tour, and they came back fighting. So definitely, better luck next year, lads. I'll be keeping an eye on you to see at least if you beat BMC. But that is it for this week. Till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into. (laughs) 